Welcome, everybody, to Connecting the Universe. I'm author and researcher Mike Ricksecker with another great interactive class for you this evening, Interdimensional Beings and Legendary Creatures. This one is going to be, at least for me, a lot of fun. I always like exploring this topic because there's a lot of... Um, well, we get into the inner workings of the universe when we go down this path. And we're probably going to do a little bit more with legendary creatures with this one than I usually do, because um, I'm not, I'm not really a cryptid guy. I'm not, you know, the uh, cryptozoology, not so much my forte. But as you keep exploring this universe, you're finding more and more how these things might actually come into play, and not even so much from a supernatural standpoint as you know we're actually finding things in the archaeological record that lend credence to these different things, as we shall see this evening. So I do want to encourage those that are listening to the podcast later, please join us. Uh, weekdays on Wednesday nights, ConnectedUniversePortal.com. That's where you can watch the full live presentation. Ask your questions down in the chat. Um, you get the slide presentation, all the videos that we show. You get to see those you know, crystal clear rather than just listening to it later. Also, uh, on the back end, you get all of the articles, monthly Q&A, all kinds of sneak peek and behind-the-scenes videos, a lot of great content that is back behind there, all the Egypt, uh, all the American Southwest footage, we've got Ireland coming up, all that is there for you. 30-day free trial, ConnectedUniversePortal.com. So this is our weekly class, which is actually this particular week airing on a Tuesday night, just because the way my crazy schedule has been of late. So, all right, let's go ahead and get into the class question, which was, this thing would like to display, there we go. Um, I, I, I do have to kind of warn you, uh, and, and things might be working a little slow for me right now. We do have tornado warnings and in, in crazy things like that in effect right now here big storm uh was just raging a moment ago so if i disconnect i do apologize ahead of time we'll try to keep it clean but the class question for this evening which interdimensional being or legendary creature would you like to have an interaction with and learn more about so when i see Anne celine is down there in the chat and posting the link to connecteduniverseportal.com i absolutely appreciate that of course um, and in fact, uh, she threw out there, and I don't know, Anne, if you actually posted it there on the thread in the group. I know you kind of private messaged me uh, about this question, but uh, she wanted to know, okay, does, does Pan count? So the Greek god Pan. And yes, absolutely, legendary creature, because Pan was a satyr, which is a half man, half goat. So let's get an uh, image of Pan up here. I need to take that banner off, so we'll take that. There's Pan. So, again, Pan is a Greek god. He's considered god of the wild and is associated with nature, wooded areas, and pasture lands. According to Greek mythology, the reed flute, which he's known for, was first played by him. Uh, when he chased the beautiful nymph Syrinx, which means reed, uh, and tried to embrace her, Syrinx, who did not like Pan, prayed to the river gods and was transformed into lovely reeds. It said that Pan missed the transformed nymph and found comfort for the rest of his life by playing his reed pipes. And of course, what's interesting about you know, the reeds is in the uh, in the wind, the reeds kind of make a little bit of their own music. So that kind of adheres to the whole tale of, of Pan 
and the flute. So do keep in mind that as we go through the evening, uh, the tales and creatures and entities and beings that we're going to talk about, they grew out of something that was experienced a long time ago. And we're not going down the extraterrestrial route the, uh, tonight, but um, when we do talk about interdimensional beings, it could be ETs, and it does, these this phenomena, these stories do grow out of somebody's experiences. Now, with the older uh, legends and lore, or the older beings and entities, legend and lore grew up around those things, but somewhere in there, in the beginning, there is original truth. So, uh, so keep that in mind as we go through all of these. I know we have a lot of skeptics out there that just like to you know, toss everything up to, well, you know, they're just stories and fairy tales and things like that. To a degree, yes, there is some of that within there, but in the beginning was somebody's experience with something. And the way the stories came about was the context of their environment and their culture and what they knew. I've talked before about Thunderbirds. We're not talking Thunderbirds tonight, but if these were say airplanes that went through a portal into the past, then how would those Native Americans have associated a Thunderbird or associated a plane? They would have, in their context, associated with a bird, and therefore comes the legends. So keep those sorts of things in mind as we go through this. So where we're going to start this evening is something that I haven't talked about before, although this being has been an interest of mine for 20 years since it was first revealed. I posted an article on this uh, on my Facebook this morning and also on Twitter, and that is what people keep referring to as the hobbits, homo, if I can say it right, uh, homo floresiensis. Uh, basically, this is a tiny diminutive uh, hominin from the island of Flores, which is in Indonesia. Discovered in 2003, uh, the information I was published in 2004. These things stand at just, a, just about three and a half feet tall and weigh only about 66 pounds. So really your classic hobbit size. Uh, the, the tales from J.R.R. Tolkien when he talked about hobbits, they were only about three and a half, not quite four feet tall. Anybody who ever played Dungeons and Dragons, that was the size that you gave uh, hobbits or halflings is what they called them in Dungeons and Dragons. So uh, these these beings date to between 100,000, 60,000 years ago. Uh, they uh, Tools of them appear in the fossil record from 190,000 to 50,000 years ago. So it means that these uh, hominins shared their world with modern humans. So now what's interesting about this and why I bring it up is there's been an article here recently and actually a book that's coming out uh, by anthropologist Gregory Forth, who works at the University of Alberta in Canada. And he claims that the hobbits may still hide today and reside in the lush rainforest of Flores, the island in which uh, their fossils have been found. A quote from him says, 20 years previously, when I began ethnographic fieldwork on Flores, I heard tales of human-like creatures, some still reputedly alive, although very rarely seen. So he recorded, uh, and, and you can find this in his book that'll be coming out, and I did not, oh, I do have the, the title here, okay, <clears throat> excuse me. So he recorded 30 stories of encounters with these 
uh, hobbits given by members of the Leo people who live on the eastern portion of Flores. He spoke with eyewitnesses and recorded their tales. So he's compiled all of those accounts in the book uh, Between Ape and Human, an Anthropologist on the Trail of a, of a Hidden, hidden Hominoid, if I could speak correctly. So I find this absolutely fascinating because, you know, if this was somebody publishing like a Bigfoot book saying, you know, you know, we believe that, you know, Bigfoot is in the, the rainforest down there. Everybody would, you know, like skeptics and all that, they would just discard it. But here's an anthropologist that's been studying on this island for, uh, you know, some, some 20 years. And, okay, there are, you know, fossils of, you know, the, uh, of these hobbits. And his... His assertion is that they may still exist because the people of the island, the Leo people, are telling tales of seeing them. Now, to me, that's kind of a—I kind of chuckle at that, um, you know, because like when we talk about the woolly mammoths, the idea that some woolly mammoths may still be roaming Alaska, we have fossils of them, we know woolly mammoths existed, but people will laugh and scoff at the idea. Okay, woolly mammoths are extinct. How could they possibly still exist? Well. It's a massive land, Alaska. Uh, there are very, very remote areas that people don't go to and visit. So there could be very isolated small pockets of, of woolly mammoths that are up there. Island of Flores, very, very small. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> you know, how many thousands of those little islands could you get into the state of Alaska? You know, quite a few. And yet here's a guy saying, because of stories that they've told, I believe that these... Uh, these hobbit folk are actually still out there in the woods. So it makes you think of a lot of, lot of different things. Like, we're going to get into fairies later. So when I first heard of these things, almost 20 years ago now, right? So it had been 18 years ago that, uh, that this was first published uh, about this discovery. Reading the information back then and I'll, I'll admit i have not done a full study of it here since this uh since this came out a couple of weeks ago um they were talking about the people of the island talked about these smaller people that interbred with them and you know the leo people and in their tales of these creatures that interbred. They said that they're their own people that are there now. You could tell which ones had interbred with them because they were smaller in stature and large-breasted. That's one of the kind of features of these uh, of these smaller people is the, the women had very large breasts. Um, and in the Leo people's tales, some of them were talking about, and maybe it was a bit of an exaggeration, but so large that they were flopping them over their, their shoulders so that they weren't, you know, kind of hanging all around. So, 18 years ago, when I was still married, this is where I went with this. Um, given those tales from the island of Flores, these hobbit-type creatures, three and a half feet tall, I started thinking about, well, what about some of these other tales? Now, here's one. Okay, they have found the fossil record. I took them how long to come across these things? I mean, this is just 2000, 2003 that they were discovered. There's plenty more out there for us to discover in the world. And up to that time, the idea of a small humanoid person like that 
was largely frowned upon. When you talked about elves, dwarves, fairies, little people, leprechauns. And this is where I went with it, leprechauns. Uh, we're going to be in Ireland here in a couple of months. And this is something that we'll take a, a brief look at while we're there. The leprechaun tales. So my ex-wife uh, is Irish. And uh, she's of small stature on, on the short side. And she is large-breasted. So when this came out about the hobbits of Flores and their description of being small in in all of this and the features that are mentioned. And considering, again, the tales of smaller diminutive folk uh, in Ireland, which my ex-wife was, again, Irish, um, I started calling her, <laughs> I was kind of teasing her a little bit, I started calling her my little leprechaun uh, be, because it's like, okay, now we have this fossil record back into the island of Flores that there are smaller statured people that once roamed the earth. This is no longer legend. They existed. Now, we have not found those type of remains in Ireland or other countries yet, but the fact that they did exist lends credence to the fact that we could find them elsewhere in the world. Uh, after all, we have found over the years as we keep exploring, keep exploring, keep exploring that, you know, there are different peoples that migrated across the globe and we keep finding them further and further back into antiquity. So what we knew 20 years ago, 50 years ago is different than what we are discovering now. So we'll keep this thing going. So again, uh, I think this is actually a big win for you know, the big, the Bigfoot community and uh, other cryptozoological creatures, because now you have a, an anthropologist making this assertion just based on stories and sightings of the locals there. So we'll see where that goes. Uh in in Anne saying uh, loving loving the goat man stories as well. I, I'm not actually talking about the goat. That was would have been a good one. Um, we're going to talk about some other creatures, but that would have been a good one as well. Um, all right, so we are going to talk. Uh, see Skinwalkers, Wendigo. Just kind of give you an overview. Go, overview. Uh, Kushtaka. Uh, we're going to talk about doppelgangers. We'll throw in some things about gin, shadow people, fairies at the end. I have a couple of video clips. Uh, for you there. So let's get into skinwalkers here. Probably spend a little bit too much time on the, the hobbits, but that's something I haven't talked about before at all uh, for all the years that I've been doing this. That one's just kind of been on the back burner, and I thought it was great that there was more information that came out about that now. Okay, skinwalkers, here we go. So American Southwest. Uh, skinwalkers, shape-shifting entities, uh, that live in and amongst their their native tribe. They're, they were originally uh, a medicine man or shaman who chose an evil path, and they take on the form of an animal to inflict suffering on others. Now, in order to actually become a skinwalker, the shaman must be initiated by a secret society of other skinwalkers and part of their initiation is they are required to kill a close family member. So they wear the skins of animals, specifically the ones that they transform into. 
which is why actually uh, some tribes like the the Navajo insist that uh, that the tribe not wear the pelt of any predatory animals. So that's their way of kind of trying to to weed out who may or may not be a skinwalker. So they have a number of different special attributes uh, like mind reading, controlling thoughts, ability to jump off high cliffs, and they're supposed to be able to outrun cars. So you see some kind of more modern mythology being ingrained in here now with them. So they're said to be able to control night creatures such as wolves and owls to be able to do their bidding. And they're also said to be able to reanimate the dead to attack their enemies. Uh, some people do believe that encounters with skinwalkers will generate curses, and those who cross their paths will suddenly suffer from bad luck, nightmares, and nightmares, uh, nightmares, and uh, health problems. So, what you would do, of course, to to try to alleviate this is uh, get a good Native American shaman to come out and perform some different rituals and use sacred smoke uh, to ward off the bad energy given to the victim by the skinwalker so now of course we see a lot of this playing out in uh the television show about skinwalker ranch and there's been a lot of legends strange things going on at skinwalker ranch whether it's paranormal activity ufo activity of course the sightings of skinwalkers that are supposed to not only attack people but attack the cattle there uh a lot of interesting things going on there uh, and specifically that has to do with the electromagnetism uh that's within that area there are some very very fascinating electromagnetic anomalies uh in the uintah basin which includes again skinwalker ranch uh blind frog ranch and then a number of other locations around it. it's not just those ranches and that's it so it's that whole basin and our friend james keenan has done a lot of great work out there and james is even we're not going to be talking giants tonight but uh james has even related tales of the giants coming out of the uintah mountains around there that proliferated um, you know, across across the country and into uh, you know other parts of the continent, and I talk about a bit about that in my book uh, Alaska's Mysterious Triangle. When we get into the giant tales up in Alaska, if they migrated out from the Uintah Basin, um, you know, what is it they would have sought up there uh, in Alaska? And we talk about some Aztec legends and what have you. So that's a uh, we talked giants some months back. I think it was back last summer. We had an episode on that. We talked about a number of those different things. So I would point back to uh, that particular class. Uh, so skinwalkers, this is, they're shapeshifters, okay? Um, people will ask me, and, and I did you know, a, a bit of research on skinwalkers and what we're going to be talking about next, Wendigo, quite a bit because of the fact that people had asked me a number of times with my research on shadow people were skinwalkers or wendigo and these other things were they shadow entities now completely different um an interdimensional being possibly so shapeshifter now you're talking about transforming the body into some other creature so this is kind of almost like your werewolf type legend that sort of thing uh, now what's helping or aiding the skinwalker in doing this could be some sort of other entity some other somebody may consider a demonic um is it an interdimensional being are they invoking some of supernatural power to be able to take on this transformation 
possible. I make a point about the whole shape-shifting thing um, because there are, when we get into Wendigo next, there are people that say, well, skinwalkers and Wendigo are essentially the, the same thing, just kind of different parts of the country. And um, I, I disagree with that. And even though some of those people that state that are good friends of mine, I still disagree with it. It's kind of when we get into uh, shadow people and all that, it's kind of like somebody saying the, you know, the hat man is the same as the crawler is the same as the, the Mr. Wisp. And it's like, no, they're, they're different. It's maybe a similar type of entity. Maybe they're related. Maybe they're using a similar modality to come into our world and do their thing, but they're still different. And so what I mean by that is we get into the, uh, the window going to see Jeanette Kemp has joined. Uh, great to see you, Jeanette. So as we get into the Wendigo, we'll see how that is different. So uh, there are a number of variations to the Wendigo stories. Uh, they're mostly cited in the forests of the Great Lakes region, Minnesota, and up into the central regions of Canada. Now, the Alaska Triangle television show had an episode in which they covered Wendigo up in Alaska. And so that to me was kind of a stretch. Really what they were describing was more of the Kushtika legend, which we'll talk about next, uh, which also was covered by the television show. But their Wendigo are not supposed to stretch that far. Not to say somebody couldn't have traveled up there or whatever, but it's kind of like, we're not talking Pukawajis tonight, but when you look at where the original Pukawajis tales started, which was more East Coast, they've started proliferating more West, the tales. So I kind of wonder if we're not like transplanting stories from one region to another, you know, we see something that might be similar and it's like, Oh, we heard that tale back then. So it must be that when it's like, eh, there's it's, it's debatable. You know, we'll, we'll see as we go along here. All right. So keeping on with, with Wendigo here. Um, so what these things do, uh, is they feed on humans in order to survive the harsh winters of the area. Uh, many may have already begun as humans themselves, actually making them cannibals. And this is how the story is different because you don't hear about cannibalism with skinwalkers. Um, this is a quote here from Basil Johnson. He's an Ojibwa teacher and scholar in Ontario, Canada. Uh, and this is what he says. He says, the Wendigo was gaunt to the point of emaciation. Its desiccated skin pulled tautly over its bones. With its bones pushing out against its skin, its complexion, the ash gray of death, and its eyes pushed back deep into their sockets, the Wendigo looked like a gaunt skeleton recently disinterred from the grave. What lips it had were tattered and bloody. Its body was unclean and suffering from separations of the flesh, giving off a strange and eerie odor of decay and decomposition of death and corruption. So yeah, very vivid picture of this very corrupted being. Um, it looks like, it's a strange, interesting dichotomy. It looks like it's starving to death, but yet it has this hunger that's insatiable. So continuing on, uh, the word Wendigo can be roughly translated to mean evil spirit that devours mankind. And devour it does. Some of these are quotes right out of my book sorry <laughs> but it's it was just easy to grab that um but many of these are said to 
to grow to about the height of 15 feet, possess glowing eyes, sharp claws, and yellowed fangs licked over by an extra long tongue. So they're, they're gluttonous, constantly eating, even though they appear they're on the uh, brink of starvation. Supposed to be very agile, possess a great deal of speed, and have outstanding stamina to, sur to survive the long winters. The legends also state the Wendigo can mimic human voices and lure people out into the forest toward them. Once a person is isolated, the Wendigo attacks and devours the human. We'll see some of that again with the Kushtika. And this is where I think, you know, Wendigo is getting confused with Kushtika. But, uh, but we'll see. So... As we continue on with some of the different legends of what a Wendigo is, according to the Algonquin, a Wendigo spirit is created whenever a human resorts to cannibalism, which is an unfortunate tragedy that was known to occur amongst tribes as people grew hungry during dark, bitter, bitter winters. Uh, and, and there are some very realist, realistic, very real, horrible tales of cannibalism that happened within some of these tribes. And so we're going to see that here with uh, uh, with some of the Ojibwa tribes. Um, so there was an Ojibwe chief named Jack Fiddler. This is actually his son. Um, I, there is no photo of Jack, at least that I know of. Um, but what Jack did is he was a medicine man that was known far and wide for his powers to conjure animals and to defeat Wendigos. So they would call upon him whenever there was a supposed Wendigo case. So 14 Wendigos are said to have uh, fallen by Jack's hand, many of which were said to have been sent by enemy shamans. So um, you had two tribes warring against each other. One of the things you could do is send supernatural creatures like Wendigo uh, to attack your tribe. And there's an important aspect to this as well. So uh, in these cases, Jack was called on by a family member to kill a sick member before they turned Wendigo. Now, if he turned Wendigo and basically what would happen is, and we'll see with the Kushika as well, that your soul then becomes damned because there's no way for you. Your, your soul has to die as human to be able to pass on to the afterlife if you become Wendigo, your soul can't pass on to the afterlife because it's no longer human. Uh, so it's very, very tragic. So with uh, with Jack, um, what ended up happening is that uh, he, he basically, he and his brother in 1907 uh, were tried for the murder of, of Joseph's daughter-in-law in a Wendigo case. The two men pled guilty uh, Jack stated the girl was on the verge of transforming into a Wendigo and needed to be killed before she murdered and ate other members of the tribe. So, again, very, very, uh, very, very tragic. There's another case, Jack's brother, Peter Flett. Uh, Peter was on a trading expedition that ran out of food, and he ultimately resorted to cannibalism. Uh, and you can actually go into the records, the Hudson's Bay Company traders, and find some of these uh, tragic tales. And it looks like there's another photo I missed uploading here. Yeah, I didn't grab it. Sorry. Uh, but basically, it was a photo of a, uh, a tribesman known as Swift Runner, uh, which was in 1879. He... Uh, murdered and ate his entire family that winter, claiming he was possessed by the Wendigo spirit. 
So again, very, very tragic tales because there was real life, not just stories, there was real life cannibalism uh, in, in some of these cases. And some of these shamans were called upon to actually kill some of these people that they believed were about to turn Wendigo and eat other people. So when you listen to the Wendigo tales uh, and the cannibalism aspect and the emaciation of their form and all that, to me, this is more zombie type story. Um, the fact that they're you know, eating human flesh and when they when they do that, um, when they, if they do not kill the person when they eat them, then that person who was bitten turns into a Wendigo as well, which is, I mean, you just watch, you watch The Walking Dead. What happens? They get bitten by a zombie, but don't get eaten. They just, they just get a bite. They turn into a zombie, right? So it's, it's our modern zombie tale. There is a Wendigo. So skinwalkers, shapeshifter, werewolf type thing. Uh, doesn't have to be a wolf, can be other animals as well. This one relating it to, and then Wendigo, those are your zombie type stories. Okay, so I, I've mentioned the Kushtika a few times here. Uh, and that's because it is very uh, related to uh, Wendigo. Some of, some of the stories are very, very close to each other. I've had a uh, native Alaskan that's been conversing with me here the past couple of months, and he's been tossing me some other Kushtika tales, and I, I really appreciate that. And he's, he's been telling me about how there are so many of these incidents and tales that have not been published. They are untranslated you know, within the native tongue, uh, which is fascinating. So I'm keeping an keeping ear, well, an eye, because he uh, messages me. So uh, very interesting stuff. But basically, the Kushtika is another... Um, is, is a strange creature that's passed down through the Klinglet indigenous lore of Southeast Alaska. Uh, it's said to be stalking the area today. Uh, and he's known as, basically the Kushtika is, I'm sorry, again, it's, uh, I grabbed this from my book, so I'm incorrectly reading what I have here. But basically, he's half man, half otter, uh, which is kind of an interesting com combination. They, again, are shapeshifters. Stand at about six to eight feet tall with glowing eyes, needle-like teeth, and long tails. Their human attributes include human-like hands and feet, although their fingernails are like talons. When they speak, they emit a high-pitched three-part whistle. At times, the Kushtika can take on the full form of a human and blend into the surrounding tribes using a recognizable human voice to lure potential prey Again, what do you think? Out into the woods. So the whole idea that they're hiding out in the woods, they use a human voice to call for help. The human comes, they attack the human. This is a tale that was told to many, many children. Um, so, so what are those that, uh, you know, skeptics will say, well, you know, it was just stories so that, you know, kids wouldn't get lost in the woods. But again, based in some sort of truth. And again, you are seeing uh, some relations between the Wendigo stories and uh, the Kushtika. So this is actually a uh, carving uh, that was, it was on a, a small boat from uh, from one of the Klingit tribes. I think this photo was taken in the early 1900s, if I believe, uh, if I remember correctly. So uh, the goal of the Kushtika 
was to trap souls and prevent people from reincarnating. Again, this is something that would be very, very tragic for somebody in the tribe if they can't reincarnate because it means they can't, um, you know, their, their soul's damned. It's it's here to stay as the Kushtaka, that they can't go into the afterlife, they can't reincarnate, they're stuck here on Earth in this uh, in this form as this as this creature. So from there, um, where do I want to take this? Because I have some other notes here. Um, when we talk about all these different types of creatures, beings, what have you, they're in small packs like this and we mentioned that earlier with the hobbits i mentioned it a little bit briefly with you know the the bigfoot um you know same thing with like skinwalkers wendigo kushtaka they're in these they're supposed to be in these small pockets some people believe that they actually you know are interdimensional beings that they cross into our plane of existence appear in their form are here for a short time do their thing and then they pop back into um, another another dimension, another, whatever plane of existence that they come from. That's possible because we've talked about, you know, portals and stargates and things like that. You know, some people will even say, well, you know, Bigfoot comes off of a UFO uh, and does their thing. Uh, we've had, we had uh, Edge of the Rabbit Hole show, which wrapped up here a little over a month ago now. And we had Ken Gerhardt on, on the show and we asked him that question. Ken Gerhard, uh, known very well and wide for his uh, work in cryptozoology. And again, I'm not a cryptozoologist, uh, so leave it to the uh, those who are more experts in that field. And he's one that believes that, no, this is, like Bigfoot, is a physical being. They're in small pockets. They're just in very, very remote areas. If there's only, if you think about it, if there's only a handful of these left, like a couple thousand or whatever, spread over an entire continent, they are going to be hard to find. So, um, so like we kind of talked about with the woolly mammoths, they're going to be hard to find if they're still out there in some of these remote areas. I mean, again, going back to the Hobbits, the island of Flores, you're talking about a small amount on a very small island. And yet, you know, they're just sticking to the tails right now to say they may actually still be out there. All right. So let's move on to some more kind of classic interdimensional type of stuff. Uh, we're going to go on to the doppelgangers here real quick. This is always fun stuff. Um, evil twin is what uh, you know, many believe that they are. And then you have these, you know, celebrity lookalike things. And you no, know, those aren't really doppelgangers. Just two people that happen to look quite alike. But um, you know, I find it interesting in some of the, the legends and lore of talking about them being evil twins when the stories that I've uncovered on this seems to be more of some sort of time slip. We're seeing ourselves here. So the very famous 18th century German poet, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, in his autobiography, Dichtung und Wahrheit, which means uh, poetry and truth, he recounted the confrontation he once had with his own doppelganger. He was traveling on the road to Drusenheim to visit a young woman with whom he was having an affair. He was distressed and lost in his own thoughts. At one point, 
He glanced up for a moment and spotted a man dressed in a gold-trimmed gray suit. But just as quickly as he had spotted the man, the man suddenly vanished. Several years later, while traveling on the same road, Goethe realized he was wearing the same gold-trimmed gray suit he had seen on the vanishing man years beforehand. Goethe was his own doppelganger. I always find that story uh, pretty fascinating. He's like, here's a very famous individual, and he's saying, I saw myself. And that's a time slip. For whatever reason, what was going on in the moment, maybe it had to do with the fact that he was lost in his own thoughts. Maybe he got into a meditative state and was able to see another point in time, perhaps his his mind, his body tuned into, we've talked about personal resonance, frequency, and vibration. Maybe he was able to uh, tune in unknowingly, unconsciously, because he was lost in his thoughts, got, got into a bit of a meditative state, and boom, he was able to see that moment. Another interesting tale uh, from Meg Fisher. She writes another name, Rosella C. Rowe. I haven't talked to Meg in a while, but um, included her story in, in my book, A Walk in the Shadows which is very, very interesting. Um, let's try to tell it here real quick. She got up in the middle of the night as a, as a child, I believe as a, she was a teenager. Yeah, she was a teenager at the time. Um, heard her, what she thought was probably her mother in the kitchen, heard some dishes banging around. She went out there uh, to go take a look. Uh, her, her mother was supposed to be working. She's thinking, oh, maybe mom got home early or whatever. Goes out to the kitchen. Nobody's in the kitchen. But all of a sudden, through the back kitchen door, which led out to the garage, her mother walks in. But then her mother gives her this really weird look. She's totally freaked out by looking at Meg and then, boom, runs off down the hall into her bedroom. So Meg's like, what in the world was that? So she runs back to her mom's bedroom, opens the door. There's mom sleeping in bed. She's like, what in the world? And so she she wakes up her mom. She's mom, you, you know, you got home. And she's like, yeah, I got home a couple hours ago. Wasn't feeling well at work, came home, but she was like in her nightgown, you know, all this stuff. She wasn't dressed. Um, so, you know, what in the world happened there? Um, you know, the mother, the visage of the mother walking through the door, um, you know, looking at Meg the way she did and then taking off. I think it was, I think it was a couple different time slips. Meg related as she saw a doppelganger of her mother. And I think what it was is she saw her mother walking in the door at a different point in time. The mother looked at her, saw a Meg at whatever age that she was, and maybe she was thinking she should be older, she should be younger, whatever. Here's a different form of Meg. Freaked out, ran off. Um, and then, you know, Meg ends up seeing her mom, the true mom, asleep. I just think it was a time slip type of a moment. There's the interesting tale um, when I was on Jim Harold's show back in November that he related to me uh, about doppelgangers, which uh, the the young man, um, I guess he was a young adult, related the story in which uh, when he was a child, he had uh, he'd walked into the kitchen or was walking into the uh, kitchen doorway and saw this tall, dark hooded figure standing by the kitchen table got scared, freaked out, ran off. Years later, he was at the kitchen table making a sandwich or what have you, and he's wearing a hoodie. All of a sudden, he looks toward the kitchen doorway and notices a small shadow-like child standing there. It was, a, it was a shadow person in the form of a child, very small, which all of a sudden took off. And he realized then that 
that was myself. When I was younger, I saw myself grown up looking like a shadow. And now that I'm grown up, I saw myself as a child looking like a shadow. So basically, there was enough there in that time slip type moment where he could make out a form in, in a shadowy type of nature, couldn't see the full thing like Meg had or like Gutta had, but he could at least see a bit of a form and it came off as a shadow, but it was basically himself. So as we talk um, about these shadowy type forms, one of these that I want to uh, get into here real quick, because I get asked about these a lot, and this actually came up on Ancient Aliens, were the jinn. Basically, the, the basis for your genies. Uh, jinn are pre-Islamic Arabic supernatural creatures that are generally considered trickster-type entities from some other alternative universe. They've never, they've never existed on Earth as humans. They're not innately good nor evil, but the more malevolent jinn have kind of blurred that line as to whether, you know, some people consider them demonic. Um, and they're not. You wouldn't consider them a demon. But trickster in nature? Absolutely. So they have the ability to hide, conceal their true identity. Um, they're able to travel at great distances, which have led many to believe that these are actually interdimensional entities that don't only that don't only roam our plane of existence, but also exist in other dimensions as well. So, again, this came up on Ancient Aliens when we were talking about uh, shadow entities. Because, okay, this, this happens uh, quite a bit with me. I'll, I'll make a post on shadow entities, post an article, a video, you know, uh, throw out a promo for, for my book or on the shadow dimension or whatever. And all of a sudden somebody will just put the word Jin, and that's it. Like, oh, okay, that explains it all. You know, everything about shadow entities was boom, just explained right there because you put the word Jin. So there's this shadow people are Jin versus Jin are shadow people. Um, well, okay. For somebody to just, if I make a post on shadow entities and somebody just puts, puts the word Jin. To me, that's like if you if you put up a photo of a human being and your comment on that was Australians. Yes, some human beings are Australians. That doesn't mean uh, all of them are. <laughs> um, so to, it's 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 kind of ridiculous. Yes, yeah, some some shadow entities are jinn, and uh, when we get into the whole history of shadow people, shadow beings, shadow entities, all that. Um, and we see that jinn are included in that because you have those tales that come out of the Middle East. That is their way that they described what shadow entities are. Just like in Brazil, it was the Pisadera. Or in uh, Ethiopia, it was the Dukak. Um, the, in Scandinavia, it was the Mare which is where we get nightmare from. Uh, so every region had their different way of describing the same or at least similar type of phenomena, which is, of course, interesting. Also, what's interesting about uh, the jinn is they are also, uh, you know, tricksters. You know, there is this very trickster nature about them. And in a lot of our... Um, different cultures we find tricksters in a lot of tales it might be a trickster type god like loki you know from um 
you know, the, the Scandinavian legends and lore. Um, of course, we see Loki now depicted on the, the Marvel universe, but, you know, there is the god Loki, the god of mischief. Uh, and then when we look at um, a variety of different, you know, Native American tribes, they had their own uh, trickster type entities like the the coyote or there are different, uh, you know, whether it was a rabbit or uh, a spider or, you know, all these different types of entities, depending on the tribe, uh, that described a trickster type entity that existed. So people aren't going to look at a gin and say, well, that's a coyote you know, or a rabbit. In, the, in Native American lore, they had those different tales in which they you know, anthropomorphized animals into those roles. Where in the Middle East, it was different. They gave it this, this persona of the jinn. Or in the Scandinavian countries, they gave it the persona of Loki. So somewhere along the line, there was some sort of trickster type entity that proliferated across the earth into all these different cultures. And each culture ended up describing it a different way. So, all right. Got about 13 minutes left in the show, and I have two video clips that I want to show here. Uh, as we get into fairies, I, I talked a little bit about them uh, earlier. I mentioned them a couple times at the very beginning of the class. We mentioned them a little bit last week as well when we did our class on ancient mysteries of Ireland. We looked at we looked at ring forts, and of course, uh, the fairy rings, which is the the mycelium uh, that actually grows in the ground and then pops up as mushrooms. Uh, but we looked at uh, fairies a little bit last week with that. Um, where I want to go with this this week, uh, and, and, and Celine saying the trickster guys are such interesting beings. They really are. They could do a uh, an entire class on just those. And uh, yeah, I really like this this photo. Um, I did use this in in my video on. Um, Unreal Fairies, which was a year and a half ago. I pulled these couple clips out of that uh, in which I, mean, I do believe fairies exist and they exist in different forms and in different parts of the world. There are two distinct times that I believe I actually saw them. One was a translucent yellow ball of light and the other was all these little blue lights that came down uh, out of the woods at Hinsdale House. So I'm going to play these two clips and let myself uh, describe these incidents to you. When we came to the idea that this may be a fairy was when we absolutely saw something fairy-like following the Ghosts of the Goldenrod event later that November. When the event concluded on the Goldenrod showboat, there were just three of us left, myself, my ex, and her friend Tara. Now, we were just in the showroom of the old showboat, the two ladies sitting down and I was standing in the middle. The only light was my flashlight shining back up into the lobby area, and since they had boarded everything up for the winter, there were no other sources of light. Well, we were just talking when I suddenly saw this translucent yellow ball kind of float down between Tara and Shauna. Now, I mentioned it very quickly, but really didn't pay it much mind. Maybe it was just a trick of the light or something. We were all looking out there toward the lobby. Now the first time I saw any sort of ball of light, it whooshed down real quick right there. 
but it was just a few minutes later when I suddenly saw this strange bar of light right next to Shauna on the floor. So what I first saw after that was that little bar of light on the floor here. And my flashlight was pointing out that way, straight out to the lobby, it was on the floor. But that little bar of light was angled this way, like right here. So I walked around Shauna over to where it was at to try to figure out where the light was coming from because like I said, the entire boat was boarded up. So I'm moving my hand to and fro around it to try to break the light, whatever beam of light may be coming down to make this strange bar of light. It was slightly V-shaped. And it was short, I don't know, about three inches long. Slightly V-shaped. And then it wavered. I was like standing here pointing, 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 trying to figure out you know, if I could break a beam of light. And it wavered and went away. The girls are looking at me like I was all kinds of strange and weird. They have no idea what I was doing. Well, then the bar of light did something very strange. It started wavering like this, and then it was gone. So I tried to describe to the women what I had seen, because I had no idea what in the world I was doing. And while I was doing that, suddenly that ball just whooshed around Shauna. Like a minute later, I saw it whoosh around you. And they still hadn't seen it. They still think I'm off my rocker. But then a moment later, that translucent yellow ball of light was again in the air and boom, 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 bouncing all over the showroom. They finally saw it. And we truly believe that this was some sort of entity that was there with us. Now, Tara is a psychic medium. She was hearing things when we were saying, wow, you're fast. She was hearing things like, I know. None of us had any video left on our cameras from the event that night, but we do have like a four minute audio clip of this interaction that we had with this ball of light dancing around the showroom. Oh, did you see it? Yeah. It's over there. Yeah, you saw that too? Okay, cool. Cause I was like, it was a, it was, if it was a twinkle, it was a big one. Yeah. Yeah, it was almost like a ray of light. Yeah. You guys are picking up the pace. What is going on? Where are you? That was a pretty good size. That was in the Pretty good size of <laughs> Like it was round. Well, finally, the last time that I saw it was when it swooped down between Tara and Shauna and out into the lobby. Whooshed between the two of you and out to the lobby area. Now, given this amazing interaction with this translucent ball of light and this bar of light, which I believe was transformative, I believe that whatever was that translucent ball became that bar of light on the floor and then became the translucent ball again. But given this interaction in the photo that we saw that summer, were these perhaps water sprites? Okay, um, now a little bit of a longer clip. The next one's even a little bit longer. Uh, so I need to kind of get these in before the end of the class. But that on that river earlier that year, about uh, two miles, a little over two miles to the south, we were exploring some abandoned locks where the the barges would, would go through uh, way back in the day, like 1920s. And we're exploring down there, and we captured on camera uh, what looked like or may have been little fairies, just the way the, the light was moving it was very very strange I, I don't have those photos queued up but um we're like okay those are interesting photos but when that incident happened months later it was like okay there's something along this river uh that could be fairies light sprites those sorts of things 
Now, this other one is from Hinsdale House. You can watch this full uh, video on Real Furious on the Hunter Road Media YouTube channel, but let me give you this other clip here. This one's a little bit longer. It was in the woods behind the haunted Hinsdale House in New York when I also saw what may have been fairies while investigating the property with Megan Talbert in late September 2019. When I tell this story, people like to say that these possible fairies were actually fireflies. However, this was the wrong time of year for fireflies. This was late September, and these were blue lights that we saw. Now, blue fireflies do come out in June in some areas around the Carolinas. However, again, this was late September, and we were up in New York, not down in the Carolinas. So these weren't fireflies. When Megan and I first saw something strange back in the woods behind the Hinsdale house, we had seen way off into the woods this strange ball of blue light. It was moving a bit between the trees. And what was interesting about it was as it moved between the trees, it also would become blurry at times, kind of fade out. And then it would get a little bit brighter and then we could see it clearly. And it was doing this for quite a while. Okay, so out in the woods here and we're seeing some different lights back over there which may just be some stationary lights on the neighbor's property hard to tell but then we had that crazy weird sound in there we have no idea what it was but the blue light is kind of dancing around a little bit I have to keep moving in order to see it i'm sorry no that's okay yeah, i need to i'm here i can see it but i have to keep kind of swaying to keep my eye on it so it makes me think it's not completely stationary and it's like it's kind of hovering around the same mm -hmm. spot yeah and it does flash, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I know, like when I first saw it, it was kind of like blurry a little bit, which is kind of weird. Well, we finished up that part of the investigation and did a regular paranormal investigation down in the haunted Hinsdale house. We took a break a little while later and went outside in the backyard to stoke up the campfire. And as we're just sitting there talking, little blue lights started to come down out of the woods. We saw them come down the path. We saw them in the tree line and they started to come closer and closer to us well this was absolutely fascinating so we went out to take a look at the lights and what was interesting about this is the ones that were up more in the trees were kind of twinkling and moving about while there were several that were on the ground and what happened when they were on the ground was they would like fade in really bright and then slowly fade out yeah, right there in the path right there in the path Hi, hi. It's okay, come on. You can right there next to the audio recorder is a twinkle. Hi, that's right. Come on back. Well, we got out our cameras, we got out our flashlights, and we're trying to figure out what exactly this is. Of course, the first idea is, are these some sort of strange bug? Well, we got right down there on the ground, looking with our flashlights. There's no bug, nothing whatsoever. They're so close. I can just... Megan, honestly, I've never seen them like this before. Like, they've just come so close in so many of them. Right. I know we might seem really big to you, but we're, we're not here to harm you. Yeah, I mean, we're trying to be careful. Oh, right there. Oh, I see it, I see it. Hi. Hi. There's two. There's sometimes when I see these on the ground like this, it kind of has that blurry effect that I was seeing back then. We're trying to capture this stuff with the camera and it was almost impossible to capture these little blue lights on camera. I tried infrared, I tried regular shot, 
all different kinds of things to try to get these on camera. I do have a little bit of a blurry image of one, so we may have actually gotten it. They're so bright. So unbelievably bright, please. So this went on for quite a while, and what I decided to do was to leave an offering. A lot of people talk about leaving offerings for fairies. Well, we had an apple available to us, so I put an apple out on the path. Okay, I'm putting, this is my offering to you. I'm putting an apple down. I'm going to put it next to you. How about that? And there's a couple of them. Whoa! I just saw like three of them light up right when I put that down. And there's a big one back there. See, right there, right there. When we came out there in the morning, what was really strange about the apple is that it was exactly in the same place in which I had left it. It had not moved at all, but yet something had burrowed into it from the side, took out a large chunk, but looked like it had actually burrowed into it. And then around the apple were all these little shards and pieces of the apple. There's the apple that we left as an offering. And honestly, it does look like somebody taking a bite out of the side of it. And that's exactly where we placed it. That's exactly where we placed it. And if that... It's nothing big. It's not like... Definitely a, a deer did not take a bite out of it and leave it, it there. If it was a deer, it would have been in a different location. Yeah. Something, something small ate Is into it, it. I was going to say, it's like almost not hollowed, but that's it's not just a bite. And there's chunks of it around. Yeah. Like it was, and there's pieces of it, like it was carried off. Over there. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, that was a really, really fascinating experience and the most difficult thing to try to get on camera. Uh, yeah, I was using IR. Uh, Megan had a full spectrum camera, it was not showing up on either one of those. That little clip there, and, you know, I was trying, okay, I'm just going to use my regular camera, no light. Um, see if I can pick up and it just shows up as a little dot there for like two seconds and it blurs out and that's it and that's all we got of it um, and it was it was doing this for a long time too it was it was amazing it was absolutely amazing and you know it was fascinating okay so we you know we see these little things going of course one of the things are they some sort of bug so we're down there you know at one point with flashlights trying to find these little things that are making this like we could not find anything when we put the flashlights down and we're looking for bugs or what have you, that would make this light. Nothing was there at all. We turn the flashlights off and there are little blue lights all over the place. <laughs> it was absolutely amazing. And uh, thank you, Anne, for uh, for posting the links to both uh, to the video itself and the Hunter Road Media YouTube channel. Um Throw out there real quick that uh, you know, since I haven't really done a lot with the Hunter Road Media channel of late, and I've been doing more, you know, connected universe sort of thing, you know, just get some opinions here real quick. Uh, although all the videos out there are Haunted Road Media uh, branded, should I be changing that channel to the Connected Universe Portal, Connecting the Universe, make it just Mike Ricksecker, and then, you know, build 
off of that. Again, I'm not going to be doing a lot out there because there's too many other projects I'm involved with, but I want to start doing a little bit of something uh, out there again because it, over the last year and a half, it's just kind of a smattering of a, of a few videos. When I had been doing something weekly, sometimes bi-weekly or twice a week for uh, for a long, long time, there were over 700 videos up there. So um, let me know your opinions on that. So that is... Ta-da, our episode of Inter Inter Interdimensional Beings and Legendary Creatures. Again, we're just touching on a few things here. Um, you know, there's so many other different types of entities that are out there that we could have talked about, and these were just a few. Uh, so for those that are listening to the podcast later, uh, do really want to encourage you to come out here on Wednesday nights. Watch those video clips with us like uh, we just did, rather than just listening to them later. Come out, watch the videos with us. Watch the whole slide presentation, everything that's involved with it. Ask your questions during the show, uh, post your comments, all that. Uh, there is a free 30-day trial. Of course, you get all the other information and videos on the back end uh, between the uh, monthly Q&A videos, the behind-the-scene videos, the, the weekly video blogs, the sneak peek videos, all the articles. There's a lot of great information out there, plus uh, Egypt, America, Southwest, Ireland coming up. There's a ton of information and videos within those uh, segments as well. So, all right, everybody, enjoy the rest of your week. We will be back regular time, uh, regular day next week, next Wednesday at 8 o'clock p.m. We will see you then. Till next time, if time really exists.